just like to just say how happy I am actually to be here and to share uh, these teachings with you and share something of what I feel like the, the gift that has come to me from the Dharma and particularly these, these teachings around Samatha that feel like they, well the Dharma as a whole so it's just made such a massive uh, revolution in my life and it's just a real joy to, to share that with you. Just sit there. Okay. Uh, some of you I know, and uh, a lot of you I don't know. So my name's Rob, and let me just introduce Chris. Chris is sitting here. Some of you will be able to see him. Chris will be assisting me on the retreat. So, so here we are on retreat, and you made it here. You know, in a way, any retreat, any retreat that we do, is a kind of stepping out of the stream. And a stream of our day life and stepping into another stream. We're stepping into a contemplative stream. And that stream, that contemplative stream, is something that just goes back and back and back. Ancient uh, in in. generations and millennia, in fact, of human beings who've uh, wanted to take themselves away a little bit from the bustle, the busyness, and just put that aside and enter into something else, enter into a period, long or short, uh, in order to inquire more deeply into life, in order to see if it's possible, see what is possible for a human being, see what is possible for consciousness. And to just have the question, is it possible that I can meet life differently? Is that possible? Is it possible that there's an understanding that can come? Is it possible I can understand life differently? I can understand life and death even differently. And that's behind this movement, that's behind this stepping into this stream. So in a way, when we come into this retreat environment, we're actually supported by the momentum of that stream, the momentum of countless human beings over, over millennia, as I said, that have, that have gone into that, made the same movement, asked the same questions. This, this is a samatha retreat, so this word samatha, as you will probably know by now, means calm uh, or tranquility. I'm going to be using two words uh, pretty much interchangeably. One of them is samatha, one of them is samadhi. So they, they do have slight difference, but for now it's not important. I just probably use them interchangeably. Samatha, samadhi. Samadhi is S-A-M-A-D-H-I. Calm. Tranquility, most usually translated as concentration, which is fine. Concentration, um, a collectedness of mind, uh, a unification of the being, a unification of the mind and the body t- together. Samatha samadhi. 
that collectedness, that calmness, that tranquility, that concentration leads to pleasure. It leads to happiness. I'm saying that right from the beginning in this retreat. It's supposed to lead to pleasure, sense of well-being, sense of happiness. This is what we're aiming towards. And more and more over time, a really deep sense of pleasure and happiness and well-being. Really deep, profound. More profound, uh, I would easily wager, than anything one has known before. That's gradual. So. This is not, it's not just a Buddhist thing. So samadhi, samatha, there are even words that are in other traditions. It's not just a Buddhist um, uh, effort or project to develop calmness, concentration, etc. It, it, it goes way back, actually, quite a long time before the Buddha. But the Buddha placed huge emphasis on it in his teaching. And if you flick through the original discourses of what the Buddha taught, every few pages he's referring to it and telling people to develop. Develop samatha, develop concentration. Very, very uh, large emphasis on it. In fact, he recalls that, some of you know the story, but it his decision to really cultivate samatha and concentration was a huge turning point in his practice, one of the major turning points in his practice. He had left the palace, as many of you will know, and he had engaged in years of severe, kind of hardcore asceticism, really starving himself, really uh, gung-ho asceticism. And one day he had a memory he had a memory of when he was a small child sitting under, uh, sitting in the garden of his father, who was the king, sitting in the garden in the shade of a rose apple tree. And he was watching a farmer in the distance plowing a field. And there was something as he was watching, something in his being there that enabled him to settle, to open up into a lovely state of the mind unifying, a lovely state of samatam, unifying, being very present, very open, very bright, very joyful. And he remembered that as he was practicing this hardcore asceticism. And he said, the, the sense was, that, that's blameless. There's nothing wrong with that. And what's more, it's probably fruitful. There's fruit there if I can develop that. And he changed his direction and revisited those kind of states, that kind of samatha, etc. Later on, after his awakening, he said, as long as there is respect for samadhi, as long as there is respect for samadhi in people who practice, the dharma will not decline. So, this is, in most of the retreats I teach are insight meditation retreats and sometimes some other stuff, but most, mostly it's insight meditation retreat. This is a different kind of retreat. It's going to have a slightly somewhat of a different emphasis. It's going to have a somewhat different tone than the usual way I would approach teaching. And one of the aspects of that is that I'm almost exclusively only going to be talking about meditation. So usually we'll be bringing in a lot of uh, daily life stuff and examples, etc. Mostly going to be talking about meditation, certainly in the instructions, but even in, in, the, in the Dharma talks. 
and really, really wanting to explore both the, uh, and give a foundation, hopefully, of both the technique, uh, techniques involved here, and what's bigger than technique, the art of it. Because what we're really talking about is an art. There's, there's no question about that. It's not so much about rules of technique, like when this happens, you do this, and da 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 like that. Like, sometimes it can be that simple translation, but it's more of an art, and I want, in a way, I want to communicate something of the art of it, and hope that you begin to get a little feel for the art of it yourself. I'm also going to say way too much. I'm going to really be saying quite a lot of stuff, much too much probably than you can take in at the time. I'm going to be putting lots of information out, lots of little tips and approaches and things to consider, etc. Why? Because people are different. Because it's an art. People are different. So, I don't know how many people are in this hall, 60-something, whatever. Different people hear different things. Different people need different things at different times. Different people respond to different things at different times. Different people will find different things useful at different times. So, in putting out, certainly, the instructions, it's not... It's not even that they're particularly linear. It's more of a sort of, I don't know, buffet kind of affair. And because I can't say everything at once, I'm going to have to say them in a certain order. It might be that something later is, would have been useful at the beginning, whatever. We can just uh, do what we can do. I will also be mentioning some things in sort of in passing and amplifying them later, <coughs> repeating other other facets, etc. So, I'm talking to you, obviously, but I'm also talking to this black thing here, in the sense that I'm talking to you right now, and some of you will like this. Some of you are going to really like it a lot. Some of you will not be interested in it at all. But some of you will want to really pursue this afterwards, and that's why I'm talking to the black thing, the recording. That you don't don't worry if you don't get everything. It will, assuming it all works, it will um, <laughs> it will be recorded and be there for you to revisit. And you'll, you'll say, oh, "I didn't even hear that the first time." It's okay. So take what you can get and kind of let the rest go, trusting that the the, the machine is is working. So I want to talk a lot about attitude tonight, and and the attitude that we bring to practice, and the attitude we bring to retreat. Two words tonight, actually a lot of words tonight, but two words I want to emphasize. Two P's, beginning with P. Play and patience. Play and patience. These are really, really key for this practice. Actually, I think for all meditation practice, particularly for samatha. What does play mean? What does it mean to play? What would it mean for us to play with our practice? What does the word play mean? I mean, to me it means... There's an element of creativity, there's an element of curiosity, there's experimentation, but in a light way. Or you might be, if you see some kids playing, it's very serious, but they're really enjoying it. That attitude, as much as possible, needs to come into your meditation practice. It's alive with that spirit of play, of experimentation, moment to moment. I'm really, really, I'm going to be saying this over and over, really, really want to emphasize that. What are we playing with in this, pra- in this particular practice? We're playing with the breath. We're playing with the breath. I'll explain what I mean later. 
playing with the breath, we're playing with the ways we conceive the breath. So usually I think, well, I've got these holes here and the breath comes in and then it goes out. And uh, Actually, that's just one way of conceiving of the breath and we're playing, and I want to encourage you, and I'll, I'll unfold all this over the days, play with the way we conceive of the breath. Also playing with the way that the mind relates to the breath and the body. So as human beings, what do we have? We have mind, body and breath. And that relationship of the way the mind relates to the body, I'll be amplifying this a lot over the days. In terms of effort, of forcefulness of attention, of sort of Uh, strength of attention or lightness or delicacy of attention. These are all really, really important factors. Relaxing the attention. So playing with the breath, playing with the way we conceive the the breath, playing with the mind's relationship to the breath. And lastly, playing with perception. We're actually playing with perception, it turns out, when we do this practice. I will explain all this over the days. So play, very important. And patience. That this is a beginning, you know, we've got five days together or whatever it is. And we're beginning something here that's actually a lifelong, a lifelong process. It really is. So to have patience, it won't be linear. It's going to be up and down. Uh, what I want to give you, what I really want to give you, is something you can take away with in terms of tools that you can then work on. That's what I really want to give to you. And I want you to be able to take away. So... I would ask and encourage also, partly based on last year's experience, that you have an open mind to this, particularly if you've done a lot of meditation before, funnily enough, if you've done a lot of Vipassana or Zen or or insight meditation or whatever it is, that you actually have an open mind, just uh, a sense of experimenting for five days, because this will probably feel new and a different approach, a different even orientation to what practice is. So with the techniques I'm giving out, if it really doesn't work after a few days, just come and say so to me. And you, you know, I'm not fixed on this technique. I actually don't even care that much about the technique. Uh, it, it's fine. We can find something that works. Now some of you in this hall I know, and I know quite well, I know your practice as well. One or two of you, I'm thinking <coughs> a small handful right now, all already have been practicing in a way that the practice feels very good. Since I'm just talking to a small handful of people, it already feels very good in the body. If it already feels very good, stick with what you have and we can keep going there. So you know who I'm talking to. Okay, so as I said, we're going to play with the breath. We're actually manipulating the breath in this practice. Not all the time, but we're, we're going to be doing that as part of the practice. So it's, it's not like um, most of the ways that sort of pranayama get, gets done with, or, you know, or, or whatever, all that. Um, it's much more delicate, it's much more subtle than that, but we are manipulating the breath. Now, often, there is quite an objection to this, as if we shouldn't be manipulating the breath. There's something kind of, that's not proper meditation, that's not proper, that's not what you do if you're spiritual or something. But I would just actually come right back with a question and say, why not? So this is quite common for most people to have been taught not to manipulate the breath, not to play with the breath, to let the breath be as it is. But I would say, why not? And I, 
to be honest, I've never had someone uh, explain it satisfactorily to me. But I think part of our resistance might be that we talk so much in meditation about being with what is. And a lot of, a lot of the thrust of practice is just to be with things as they are, without changing, letting go of this kind of compulsion to fiddle around with everything and change it and make it better. But being with what is, beautiful as that is, can never be the whole of practice, never. And if our practice is only being with what is and not kind of responding and shaping things, then that kind of practice actually doesn't translate that well to our daily life. We are not 100% passive all the time in our life. No, no way. We're responding and shaping and steering all the time, every day. Can you imagine driving your car and the road veers around to the right and, and I'm just being with what is? <laughs> it's, it's silly. So why, why actually would we want to manipulate the breath? Why would we want to play with the breath? Well, to go back to something I mentioned earlier, we, we're interested in making the sense of the body and the breath as pleasurable and as comfortable as possible. That, that's slowly, slowly, very, very gradually, that's where we're heading in this practice. We're, we're actually intending consciously to increase the pleasure, the sense of pleasure. And one of the ways we do that, and a significant way we do that, is actually by breathing, manipulating the breathing, playing with the breath until it feels good. When there's pleasure in the body, the mind, the consciousness, can actually settle with that. Most, most of the times with breath meditation, breath comes in and out, it's pretty boring. Nothing, it's just kind of... Mm. When there's some pleasure there, the mind is actually interested in staying there instead of just skipping off all the time. <coughs> and I'll talk much more about this, but that pleasure too, that sense of, of comfort, of ease, of openness, of warmth that, that can come in the body, even just a little bit, Slowly, slowly we build that and it becomes a real resource for us in our life. An immense resource for us in our life. It's not a small thing. So, so to just be open-minded about that if, if you find yourself struggling with the idea. Also, and this I will repeat a lot of what I say tonight over the days, to be open-minded in the sense of trying to let go of preconceived notions of what the breath should feel like. As I said, we tend to think the breath comes in these, you know, the mouth and the nostrils and it feels a certain way or it feels a certain way here or whatever, which is all fine. Of course, that's real. But what would it be to actually try to put that aside, just let go of that and be very open in terms of how the breath uh, might feel how the breath moving in the body might feel. Or where I should feel the breath in the body. I tend to, again to think my, it's just going down the tubes here, so that's the only place where I can feel it, but maybe not. So just to see if there can be an openness about that. And we allow things to get more and more comfortable, just slowly. So we're interested in, in this practice, um, the energy flow. We're interested in the energy flow in the body. 
That's what we're interested in. That's what we're working with. So if that sounds completely abstract now, don't, don't worry. I'll, I'll, we'll be working with this and explaining it and uh, hopefully it will become very clear. We're interested in the sense of the vibration of the body. That's what we're working with. That's what we're interested in. There's a lot to discover here. It's a whole world. It's a beautiful world of discovery if we can be open. So on the retreat, and again I'll repeat this, on the retreat, when I say body, I don't necessarily mean nails and fingers and and spleens and and all that. Uh, What I mean is this area, this area as a sense, as a sense of energy, of vibration, the texture of that, the feeling of that. So when I say how's the body or be with your body or be with the whole body, I mean be with the sense of that area. That's, that's what I mean, but I'll repeat that. And when I say the breath, I mean the movement of energy within that, as well, of course, as the, the air coming in and out and the sense of that. So I mean the totality of that. So samadhi, sometimes we, we get the sense that samadhi is just a kind of unification. You have an object like the breath or like a, a candle or something, and it's kind of the mind sticking to that and unifying with it, kind of just melting into it. And it is that, definitely. But in a way, it's much more than that, what samadhi is and what I'm really wanting to point to and open up on this retreat. It's a lot more than that. It is that, but it's more than that. It has a lot to do with letting go. Samadhi, samatha, has a lot to do with letting go. Letting, uh, letting go of the entanglement we usually have with things, with the world, with others, with ourselves, with the present moment, with the past, the future. Letting go of entanglement is actually the primary condition for samatha and samadhi. And and that letting go, letting go of stuff and, and coming into a kind of unification, allows what the Buddha calls one way he called samadhi was a lovely abiding. It allows a lovely abiding, a pleasant abiding. And in a way, that's the big part of what samadhi is. So we're cultivating that pleasant abiding. In that, and I'll go into all this over over the days, in that and through that, our perceptions begin to change. Our perceptions of the breath, of the body, of ourselves, of all kinds of stuff, begin to change, just to soften, to open up. We begin to open. The consciousness begins to refine, just gradually, slowly, not in a linear way, begins to refine and get more subtle. <coughs> Things get more subtle, including our sense of body and breath. So some, someone, maybe some someone here tonight might be hearing that and sounds, well that sounds pretty selfish to sit here and kind of just try and get as pleasant and blissful as you can. Talking about attitude tonight, I think it's really, really important to see that this is not a selfish process and if possible to actually shift it out of that, any kind of overly self-preoccupied kind of agenda. Ajahn Buddhadasa was a, oh, he's dead now, in the 20th century, he was one of the great uh, Thai forest meditation masters, a monk in Thailand, and died in the 90s. 
And he used to call, he said, meditation is a public health measure. You understand? It's like what we, what we do here is actually rippling out. We meditate for the sake of all beings, actually. Ultimately, ultimately speaking, we meditate for the sake of all beings, for the welfare of all beings. Absolutely. What, as a human being, what am I putting out into the world? What am I putting out in terms of actions? Are they, is, is the ripple peaceful? Is it helpful? Is it bringing joy? What am I putting out in terms of speech? This is huge, it's huge. What am I putting out in terms of the thoughts and the energetic vibration? So we have a big impact on each other as human beings and we are sensitive as human beings. What am I putting out? It's really good, you know, sometimes when we practice, we lose a bit of the sense of incentive for our practice. And that's going to happen from time to time. It's sometimes reminding ourselves, it's not just for me. I'm not just doing this for me, I'm doing it for all beings. It actually can help. We can deliberately reflect on this in the meditation to reorient, open up our sense of inspiration and incentive. Ajahn Buddhadasa, who I just referred to, he used to begin every Dharma talk. He used to begin, Sisters and brothers in aging, sickness and death. <laughs> Which is, as some of you may know, is a very Buddhist kind of concept. Basically what he's saying, look, we're, we are in this boat together and it's sinking. That's the reality. We are sisters and brothers in aging, sickness and death. There's not one person in this hall one person alive today who's not going to go through that. We share that as human beings. We share that. And there's something about having that shared sense at the core of our inspiration, aspiration for practice. We are doing this because we are sisters and brothers in aging, sickness and death. So we can really reflect on this. You know, sometimes... After one's over the honeymoon period of meditation, which if you're really new will probably be sometime tomorrow morning, <laughs> or if you've been doing it for years, it's very easy to slip into a kind of, not, not all the time, but just sometimes you just, you're sitting and you're sitting regularly and you're meditating regularly, but there's just a sense of just kind of getting through it, getting it over and done with because that's kind of a part of what you do in your life. And that, that happens to all of us. But in a way, one of my teachers used to say, well, this kind of getting, getting it over with mind, getting it, th- getting it through, what does that do? How does that help? What does it do for my sisters and brothers in aging, sickness and death? When I'm just trying to get through, I might not care, but what am I giving others? So right from the beginning, that there's something very important about attitude here. And seeing if that can open up and um, encouraging it to open up at times. The Buddha talked about generosity, dana, as a basis for this practice. So we can regard our practice, our meditation, as an act of dana, of generosity. Dana is a Pali word, meaning giving or generosity. 
we, we can regard it as an act of generosity to all beings. You know, others will be less subject to my irritation, my bad moods, my anger, my reactivity, my lack of calm, my thoughtlessness, etc., etc., etc. That's a gift, just that others are less subject to that. This is very important why I'm mentioning it and why I'm mentioning it tonight. <coughs> we, we can bring this attitude of giving, we can resurrect it over and over in the practice when we feel we need. It's very easy for practice to, to become quite tight. Particularly practice like this, like samatha, where we're actually trying to get, we're very clear right from the beginning, we're trying to get something, we're trying to get calm, we're trying to uh, develop a sense of well-being, etc. It's very easy for that because there's a, a goal, and I'll be talking a lot about this on the retreat, for the, for the mind to get a little tight around that, or a lot tight around that. When I shift the view to practice as a giving to others, giving, when there's a movement of giving in the heart, it creates a sense of spaciousness. Have you noticed this? Generosity as a movement creates spaciousness in the mind and the heart. When we've got too tight, it allows a spaciousness. And that allows practice to unfold instead of strangling it. Uh, recently, in the last mm, couple of months, few weeks, I saw, I think, four films about, the, about climate change and the environmental crisis. Um, one of them was, uh, some of you may have seen it, it's a new film by Al Gore. It's, quite, it's about half an hour, it's floating around on the internet. I don't know if anyone's come across that. It's really, really very good. I don't know what it's called. And I saw a film called Crude Impact, also very good. And um, The Eleventh Hour. Almost every time when it, after, after seeing this film, I, I thought very, very, very thoughtful and well, met, well made. I came away wondering kind of whether humanity could, whether we could pull this off or not. You know, it's such a massive thing. And whether, why is it we keep falling asleep with it? Why is it that it's, I, I, I read, I don't want to get into politics thing. Um, <laughs> I read um, of uh, all the different, um, no, it was in that film, the, the 11th Hour. How many questions Barack Obama and John McCain, etc., had been asked by different um, news channels in the US and it was like 358 from CNN and 300 from whatever blah, blah, blah. how many of those were on climate change? Zero, two, one, etc. Why, why is it we fall asleep around this? And then even more as humanity, are we capable of the kind of letting go, shift uh, renunciation that seems, to, as, I, as I feel it right now, seems to be being asked of us are we actually capable of that? So as, as a collective, but also individually, are we capable of that renunciation? The inner reservoir of well-being, of happiness, uh, this, this, what, we're, what we're slowly, slowly gathering in, in this practice, makes such a huge difference. It's, to me, it's the biggest factor that, that allows us to to be able to let go and to, to renounce. We need less. We literally need less. When I have enough inside here, I need less. 
No question about it. I need less. I don't need to fly wherever on EasyJet to, you know, lie on a beach. Even if work is busy. You know, and I, I know this is sensitive and everything, and, and sometimes the problem is we often, we don't have, as, as humanity collectively individually, we don't have those inner resources. In the relationship with food, the relationship with entertainment, the relationship with buying stuff to impress the neighbors or the people at work or whatever. One becomes less dependent on things needing to be convenient, needing to be comfortable, needing to have a kind of sense pleasure keeping coming at me. Less dependent also on being sense of security so much. This is all kind of really at the heart, I see, of what will enable us as a species to make the shift or not. And I don't know if that's overstating it, maybe it is. But And this sense of inner reservoir, I think, is massive. It's massive. And the heart also, as we develop this slowly, 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 really over a lifetime, we actually become more capable of goodness. We become more capable, more available to others. Because we have enough. Because we have enough. So the whole idea of renunciation, what is it, reduce, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle, it's actually, it's, it's not scary. It's just not scary. So having generosity as a basis, and that attitude of generosity and openness and kind of giving as a basic, basic part of our impulse to practice, really important. Another piece that's really important is just what I call taking care of the heart. Now we could say that's what practice is, it's taking care of the heart. You know, from beginning to end, we're really taking care of the heart in a very deep way, that's what practice means. Someone asked the Buddha once, okay, samatha, that sounds great, what does it depend on? What are the causes for, for samatha and samadhi arising? And he said, the most important thing is happiness. Which sounds odd. We just said, well, samatha leads to happiness, but actually also depends on happiness. It depends on a certain foundational level of sense of well-being. So, I'm going to put something out now, and I hope that you will remind yourselves of it periodically through this retreat, which is to incline the heart and incline the mind towards appreciation just whenever you remember to do that. So by that I mean reflecting, for instance, everything that's supported you in being here for five days. You know, maybe someone's looking after some stuff at home for you. Maybe someone's um, helped you in some way, you know, at work or whatever, so that you could be here. The managers, you know, there are eight managers here who work incredibly hard to take to support us all here. The staff members here can actually reflect on that as you're here to allow a sense of appreciation and gratitude. It's very significant. It's not a small thing. We want to nourish joy. We actually want to nourish joy. And, and we do that in a deliberate way. So it's so easy for most human beings, it's so easy to focus on the negative. And it seems so compelling, you know, well, 
if you're here, the food isn't that, or it's a bit too crowded, you know, it's a full retreat, or da-da-da, whatever it is. And it seems so compelling and so seductive. There's something so seductive almost about the, the, the complaining mind, even just a little bit. It seems so believable and so true. So partly what I want to suggest we all do is actually just keep shifting that into a mode of appreciation of gratitude. Whatever it is that, that allows that sense, that tunes you into that sense, drop it in periodically, periodically. Especially when you notice the mind you know, slip into grumbling mode. So Samatha questions this whole tendency of, in a way, being infatuated with the negative. I'll ex- I'll ex- we'll explore this much more. Appreciation and gratitude. So as part of that, being in nature. you know, Take a period a day, if you can fit it in at a mealtime, great. If you can't, actually take another period, uh, maybe a walking period even, and, and go for a walk. Go for a walk. And open the being to seeing, smelling, hearing to nature and, and the, the, the beauty of nature. I'm also going to throw something else out right now, which I may say again, is that also take a period of day for some exercise. So that may be your walk. It may be that you do yoga or qigong or tai chi or hua gong or <laughs> whatever, um, kum nye or some other oriental thingy. Um, do that thing. Uh, it, it, it's going to help in this sense of the body and the body energy. So take a period again of walking or whatever and, and do that. It's, it's really helpful. Okay. There will be interviews in the retreat, um, but these will almost exclusively be group interviews. Um, originally, when I planned the retreat, I, I really thought eight people would show up. Uh, and I would be working very individually with everyone. That's obviously not the case. There'll be groups, but in a way, on reflection, I actually feel that's better because there's so much that we're going to learn from each other in this. And you'll see when you go to a group that there's uh, so much in common. Now, usually on a meditation retreat and in interviews during a meditation retreat, kind of... um, Anything goes. No, I shouldn't say that. Um, anything is okay to talk about. So anything that's happening in your life, anything that's struggling with, anything that's going on outside, etc. This retreat, what Chris and I really want to just hear about is the meditation. So how's it going in terms of the body, the breath, that? And um, really as much as possible, seeing if the other stuff can be just, just for now, as I said, it's a different emphasis, a different approach. It's not forever. Just a little bit put aside. So that's really what we're interested in is the meditation. That's, that's what the interviews are really about. Now, there, there's something about this, about doing group interviews, especially with a practice like this, which is kind of, as I said, in a way, trying to develop something. And that is the measuring mind and the comparing mind and the pain of that. So this is a, unfortunately, it's a predominantly Western thing. And practicing at some 
um, Asian type monasteries, uh, it doesn't really exist. Uh, this reticence of sort of you can be next to someone who's just way in a different place from you, and it, it's just okay. It's just okay. So it's partly a, a Western culture. And I actually be talking a lot about this on the retreat. But is it possible that we can kind of not give that? in a way, fear of the measuring mind and the pain that might be there, if we cannot give that too much authority, and we're just there as human beings in a group together, sisters and brothers in aging, sickness and death, sharing what's going on in our practice. And so what if someone's done more than us? So what if someone's done less? So as much as possible to, to in, encourage that. And also to encourage in the groups to ask questions. You will have a lot of questions in this practice, or you should have a lot of questions. I really want to encourage that questioning. Okay, just a few very brief practical things. Silence, which the manager's already mentioned in the talk. Yeah, silence. And just to say, this is an integral part of the practice. The Buddha says dependent on seclusion. Usually we're so full of stuff that comes through us through talking, which is beautiful, you know, the communication we have through speech. But what would it be to actually not be so full of what's coming from other people or or not filling other people up with what's coming from me? And just quieting, just quieting. So this silence that we in a way, undertake together, that we commit to together, that's also an act of generosity. We're supporting each other's practice by really committing to the silence. This can feel odd at first, 60-whatever people together in silence, not talking to each other, sitting right next to each other. Could it be that there's another kind of strata of connection feeling of connection with with people in and through the silence that's there, that it's actually not about speaking. We can actually feel the life of, of those around us and, and sense that and sense the support, giving and, and, and uh, receiving. So, Manjil said, uh, please, please, the, the mobiles, which... Uh, is so quite unfortunate. I'm realizing it's quite common for people to actually just leave their mobiles on during the retreat and to text, etc. Just, just please, please don't. Um, there's a real treasure here. The, the, this stream of practice, this samatha, all the tips I'm throwing out that basically I got from others for the most part. There's a treasure here, and and don't don't miss the treasure just because you want to send some texts or you 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 know you don't want to shut off the communication. If there's something that feels like you uh, need to finish business-wise, I'm aware it's Friday night, just see if you can do it tonight and then just give yourself to the retreat. Give yourself to the simplicity of being here, the simplicity of the schedule. Just kind of surrendering the being to that simplicity. If you haven't, or rather, if you don't yet feel like you've really arrived... Um, then take a little time tonight after we finish in here and, and really just feel yourself arriving. Wander, wander around the grounds. 
the front and the back. It's very beautiful. Just feel the body, the being arrive here. Just in the quietude, just just being here uh, to settle in. Last practical thing. Uh, Doug also mentioned in the opening talk the, the ethical guidelines, the, the, the precepts, the five precepts. This, this really I see as a gesture of love. It's a movement of love that we're together committing to these five precepts, uh, a gesture of respect and care to each other, for each other, to enable an atmosphere of trust, of relaxation, enabling uh, everyone to open, to let the guard down. It's a gift to ourselves. We can let our guard down when we when we uh, abide, when we live by those ethical guidelines, and and we allow others to do so. And that openness that that allows, that openness is a huge part of samatha. It's a huge part of the mind deepening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.